Has, you know, tying this conversation about, you know, having grown up with a, a cult experience in my background combined with my realization that um, I am not necessarily a, a deep mystical seeker as a, as a, in, in comparison to others that I have met, I am not high on the mystical thirst. I'm much more of an analytical, um, excitable person. Um, however, that, you know, it's the first time I've ever had to like describe myself as, as these things. But um, I think that one of the things that I worry about is um, when people are seekers, there are people that often will take advantage of their, of their curiosity and their open heartedness. And so one of the things that worries me this is, is, this is your cult sensitivity coming out by the way. And I agree with you. Yeah. Keep going. Right. So it's, it's, it's like, you know, if someone were to peg me down and say, you know, why your dedication to Judaism or why your attempt to build innovative situations within, you know, the dialogue of a tradition. I don't think that it prevents cult-like behavior or cult-like situations, but I do hope that it becomes a situation where um, you can benefit from the wisdom of the past you can create something that is in dialogue with others and with other parts of a, of a, of a, of a, of a community. So in other words, what you're creating isn't just in a private uh, bubble that has all of those family detachment behaviors that are so dangerous. Um, and, and I think that building something experimental with psychedelics within a larger community is both beneficial to the larger community and to the one who that and the individuals that might not have psychedelic experiences and may not want them and it might benefit the ones that do but i do bring to my worries as an individual and my work as as a lawyer at plant medicine law group this cult awareness and this kind of like detachment from 
um, attempts to recreate something from zero rather than struggling with the harder path of building something that relates to a larger history and has to be in dialogue with a larger community. I think that's almost like a, a safety net is if you're doing something in the light and in communication with others. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, and expanding that a little further, my legal research has tended to lead me to the belief that if one were to try to pursue some legal ability to use um, certain entheogens within, within a religious context, that the law really isn't open to recognizing whatsoever just pure spirituality or what I'll call a religion of one. Um, so you, you have actually posed a very vexing problem that in order to get these things to advance legally, it's going to require groups to identify themselves as groups and say, hey, we're a religion and you know there's more than one of us and here's what we're doing, which in turn now creates the conundrum of what you just said, which is the dynamic of leadership within that group and putting people in a position or, or them forcing themselves into a position, which is even worse, of having unreasonable or excessive control over the congregants. And you're absolutely right. That is ripe for a potential for abuse, but in, in fairness to it too, I mean, that is the structure of most religious groups. It's just that more often than not, you've got somebody with internal self-control and a genuine altruistic spirit at the helm, as opposed to somebody who's going to turn it into, say, like the next Nexium, uh, as we've seen in I mean, recent actually, years. Actually, like, I, I push back on that a little bit. I don't think the cult of personality and leadership behind one person is a big aspect of Judaism. Well, not of Judaism, uh, for sure. I, I agree. Right. But I'm, I mean, I'm talking some sort of emerging entheogenic-based iteration of Judaism or any other religion, whatever, whatever you might want to use. So, uh, for example, uh, in Christianity, there are several divisions that openly modern embrace entheogens. You know, Rastafaris identify somewhat as Christian. They use cannabis. Uh, ayahuasca churches identify somewhat as Christian. They use ayahuasca. Um, you know, there are uh, the Native American church, somewhat Christian, uh, engages in peyote. So we, we've got plenty of examples of this around, just really nothing that I'm aware of yet in the Jewish world. But again, and we if have it, the, if the, the advantage of, of being decentralized, meaning, you know, obviously other Jews will disagree with me about the power of the rabbinate, the power, you know, of, 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 different, of different entities to de define what is Jewish and what is not. But overall, we are decentralized. There is no Vatican. There is no Correct. central um, power command that um, that basically has the ability to influence all you know all Jews and 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 what we choose to do. So I think that's you know that's definitely an an advantage. I think there's also the advantage of um, of of debate being something that is expected. I think of mm -hmm. of, of Jews and from each other. Um, and one of the things, you know, you mentioned this concept of, of, of leadership. And to me, the first thing that comes to mind is education. Mm. So in order to build this Jewish entheogenic ecosystem, you know, you've got all of these different people that you need in the world, in that world. You're going to have your 
death doulas that are trained perhaps to dispense psilocybin to terminally ill um, individuals. Yeah. And by the way, that is a topic I definitely want to get into, but it needs, yes, it needs to be its own show because it's so right. important. Something, death and psychedelics and Judaism is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. Basically life cycle. So like Jewish life cycle and how potentially um, different substances might aid in that. So like maybe there is a place for MDMA couples therapy in connection with a discussion of the ketubah and the different prayers of a, of a, of a marriage um, leading up to, you know, the wedding. Um, so these are things that like I think of for fun, but basically yeah. you know, each of these individuals that will do different things in this ecosystem will require education, yeah. education of different types that may exist. So maybe we can take advantage of places like CIIS and, and, and the training that, that is developed there, but there are also new types of education that we will, that we will need. So if we allow for uh, psychedelic therapists to not be just doctors, those individuals are going to have to be trained, right? If we, um, if we create, um, situations where people will have this as an option in a, in a medical setting, you've got to train all of the doctors that are not dispensing to send patients if they need this therapy, same thing in the spiritual realm. Maybe we will need to educate religious leaders of all types that these retreats or these experiences are an option. So there's a huge educational journey for everyone to go on, which I think Jews and education have a pretty good relationship. So In, I look indeed. forward to that. Yeah, um, a- absolutely. Uh, education is really at the heart of Jewish culture. Um, every every Jewish parent wants their kid to get the maximum possible available education uh, that's out there. Um, that was absolutely part of my culture growing up. Um, no question about it. Uh, also, like the, the pursuit for a civilization that's built on social justice. You know, that's also deep at the core of Judaism. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. You meet a Jew, bring up the topic of social justice, they're all over it. Um, So, yeah, I I agree. You know, the thing that you you said a moment ago really resonated with me as well, which was the the imbuing of the, the right to administer this not being limited to physicians. Uh, I think that's so important, you know, because historically it was never scientists or doctors. It was always shaman. It was always, I'll use the word witches. Uh, it was always priestesses who, who were administering to the public and, and, you know, dealing with the public coming to them, maybe uh, having counseling sessions uh, of, of whatever nature that was. You know, a thousand years ago, I don't think they called them counseling sessions, but that's effectively what it was. So now what we're seeing is this trend of modern science and modern chemistry and modern biology and, and people with PhDs and MDs behind their names or in front of their names, um, confirming what all this historical record already has and already knew. So I, I hope you're right that we don't see this archaic revival getting trapped now behind a wall of just scientists only because I don't think it demands that you have a PhD to be able to interact with this stuff or to interact with people over this stuff. 
Yeah, and it's, yes, I, I share with you that concern. And I think that one existing example of tension that I like looking at when thinking about this issue is the tension that exists between what substances the FDA can control, for example, and supplements, right? Yeah. Nutritional supplements that fall outside of the, um, of the control of, of, of the FDA. And this ties into some cultural trends that we're navigating right now, right? So the trend towards wellness, the trend towards people kind of defying traditional medical advice for good, you know, many times for good reasons. These are not judgments I'm making. Yeah. Um, and seeking solutions, um, using these substances and these promises that are made by companies that are not regulated and that don't have to test. And so I think you see where I'm going with this, which is like, you know, we struggle in the realm of regulation to strike a balance between innovation and access and equity and access and, and control. Um, and I think that this question of who is good enough to administer a psychedelic, who is good enough as a guide for what may be a difficult experience. Or, um, or, or even whether you can do this on your own. Or whether I, you I, I think that's fair game for conversation too. I think we live in a country that has struggled with how to define um, those boundaries. And then you, you often get lobbying interest groups that create loopholes or subsets and in industries um, that then allow for less regulation than you would want. So I think there's a tension there between too much regulation or standards that are too high and then situations where certain interest groups create for loopholes or bubbles where there isn't sufficient control to protect um, individuals and their health. So I agree that, that, that there is a lot of tension in, in, the, in those topics. Wholly agree. And I, I believe firmly there is a vast continent between the poles of total prohibition and total free-for-all. And I, I hope that folks are willing to explore that continent because there's a lot of interesting stuff to experience and should be experienced. So we, can have, we can employ the, 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 you know, the analytical, you know, the prowess of, of many Hasidic, uh, of many uh, yeshiva students to help us debate the, you know, the outlines of, uh, of legislation. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And, and they're of course invited to the conversation as well. I think everybody's got something to say and to contribute and should and should. Um, my goal is just to open up people's minds so that they take a look at this probably for the first time, uh, and judge it fairly. And, and, you know, I'm okay with whatever decision people come up with for themselves. You know, it's deeply personal, but insofar as those decisions affect other people, particularly in their ability to interact with these substances, I think that the, the naysayers and the prohibitionists at least, owe that much to to look at this with fresh eyes and say okay maybe not for me but maybe it's okay for you maybe 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 we can lift that prohibition so that if you want to go there you can go there so i i think that's the current exploration and and i also think that there is a harmony to be struck even within the regulatory environments and i agree with you because i i do a lot of administrative law um you know regulations are good but they're also a pain in the butt 
um, like in the cannabis world, uh, what we're seeing emerging over the last decade, and I've been doing cannabis law here in Arizona for the past decade, is that regulation actually helps an industry to get a foothold, and it Mm -hmm. allows the people in that industry actually to protect their turf, which can be good or can be bad. It can be good in the sense that in a nascent industry like cannabis, which has so much against it, you really want to get as strong a footing as you possibly can. So, of course, you want your regulations to exclude other players from coming onto the playing field while you're trying to dominate it. That makes sense. But at the same token, the bad of that is it allows you to exclude other players from coming onto the playing field. So other folks who would want to come into the industry can't. Uh, Other folks who would want to participate and really genuinely have something to offer find it much more difficult on top of the already existing difficulties. And then they're beholden to the folks who were the early stakeholders because they've already, you know, got their little corner of, of terra firma under their feet. So. And it's what it's, it, you know, one of the things that I realized we haven't touched upon yet, but uh, because I think we both kind of know it, we, but we should share it with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Is the disproportionate number of Jews in the psychedelic space and the disproportionate number of Jews in cannabis and, and the kind of funny you know, questions and conversations we can riff off of, off of, off of that. But I think, you know, all joking aside, I think one of the things that also fascinates me um, in this conversation about Jews who kind of left Judaism behind in the search, you know, you've got Ram Das, who many say, you know, later in his life posed questions about how he should pay more attention to what this incarnation had brought him um, as, as a, as a lineage and as, as as baggage. And I think that, um, you know, that's definitely something that I have a lot of fun kind of thinking about, which is, um, you know, from a sociological perspective, uh, how do members of the tribe uh, feel comfortable with novel industries and with industries that are potentially taboo and substances that are uh, potentially illegal how do we um, work uh, with each other and together when things are gray, um, when industries are in, in flux between legality and illegality? Um, and then, and, and, and to me, that's all kind of like a fascinating exploration um, about, because to me, it's just shocking day in and day out, you know, at Plant Medicine Law Group, you know, how many conversations kind of <laughs> come back to the juice. Yeah. Well, there is a strong Jewish presence around psychedelics and around cannabis. And, and I don't think it's anything unique to Judaism other than there's no real strong prohibition against these things, and they're fascinating topics. So, you know, certain vestiges of, of Christianity have a much stronger uh, opposition to, to this, and thus you don't see like a lot of Catholics, for example, uh, embracing this. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means, you know, if you look at these particular doctrinal uh, preferences, put it this way. How much bacon are you going to find in a Jewish home versus a Catholic home, right? It's just the okay. nature of the belief. So um, I look at it like bacon. It's just incidental. It's not necessarily more than that. <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 there's a podcast I love called Unorthodox. And they put out a book um, about the 1,000 most Jewish foods, and they actually had a bacon entry 
because I think bacon is a very hotly disputed topic among Jews. Mm. Um, you know, the Jews that would never touch a pork loin, but eat bacon. Yeah. Um, and the Jews that once ate bacon and then stopped eating bacon, but they know how good it is, which is me. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, and the ones that eat it without guilt and the ones that have never even come close to it. So I think that there's, you know, there's a <laughs> very interesting, the, you know, I, I, I'd be careful in how much you bring bacon into your argument. Um, well, I was using it as a metaphor, but that, that, that's fair. But I will tell you, in fairness, one, one of my law partners is Orthodox, and we've had these conversations about bacon, which, of course, he doesn't eat. Plus, he's vegetarian, so it's like a double no-no. Um, but he was telling me that he's been reading about the fact that um, lab-created meats are now becoming an actual thing that yeah. there is a belief that there will actually be some sort of a kosher bacon in the future that meets uh, kosher standards because if it's coming out of a Petri dish and not out of a barnyard, you don't have the whole cloven hoof problem uh, to wrestle over. And, you know, and they're interesting. I met, um, I've met this individual that identifies himself as Rabbi Batman um, at the MJ BizCon in, in Las Vegas um, while I was being interviewed by Tripping Kosher, a fabulous uh, YouTube channel that everyone should check out. And uh, he goes around um, giving the Hexure to, uh, to uh, edibles manufacturers. And he's the only one that I know of that does um, include edibles that have THC. Okay. Um, I also don't want to, you know, I, I think hey. I've mentioned in, in, in this chat, like a lot of individuals that I'm uh, admiring or, or in touch with. And I think a lot of them that I've men mentioned are, are men. And I want to in include a couple of shout outs to people that are doing Go fabulous it. work Please that do. Um, Please we do. should all consider. And I think that they're just a little quieter um, about it. But um, I do want to mention that uh, Double Blind Magazine was founded, co-founded by Madison Margolin and Shelby Hartman. And um, Madison is one of the main sources of information I find on the intersection of Jews and psychedelics. Double Blind being one of my favorite publications in the psychedelic space, but Madison is very discreet in how fabulous a repository of information she is about this. Um, Natalie Ginsberg at MAPS is doing some fabulous stuff um, with uh, Israelis and Palestinians and psychedelics in Israel and, and has some future expo explorations around the topic of epigenetics um, in mind. Um, we've got individuals like Jewish, um, like Dory Midnight that talks about plants and herbs and, and whole range of plants in a Jewish context. Um, and, then, and then I could go on, but I think it's important that as this field develops, um, many times the loudest voices in, in the Jewish psychedelic space are, are men. Um, we have to practice our best equity muscles and just make sure that because someone is a little bit more discreet or silent, um, which many people in the psychedelic space are, yeah. that they don't lose, um, you know, some of the, of the, of the spotlight. So one of the things that I'm really working on in this, in this, in this, uh, group that I kind of cobbled together called Faith and Delics. It's just like a, basically like a, a thinking group, um, a working group is uh, we really need, it, it's Jews and, and Christians and we really do need more 
women that identify as Christians who are ex experimenting with this idea of psychedelics and faith. And I also, you know, need more women um, in the Jewish tradition that are uh, exploring these, these, these issues. So, you know, we have a, a little bit of, a, a, quite a bit of work to do in, in, in terms of making sure that as this ecosystem develops, that, that we, we, we imbue this growth with diversity concerns. Whole, wholly agree. And, and it is, you know, it always comes back to public education. So this is what and we're doing power. here. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because I see we're coming up on 1030 and I've unfortunately got to go do my day job. Um, yeah, that's a darn pesky thing about having to pay bills. Um, so let me ask you this, if, if you know, um, what is Judaism's approach or stance on just being under the influence of a psychedelic? I have not found any doctrine that per se prohibits it, but equally true, I haven't found any doctrine that per se discourages it. But if you look at um, things like Kabbalah, it definitely encourages pursuit of the mystical experience. It doesn't dictate the means, but it does dictate the pursuit of it. So to the extent you know, are there any particular doctrines, writings, etc., that affirmatively or disaffirmatively point to an alteration of consciousness in the pursuit of that experience? So I don't know the explicit answer to that, um, but I am working very hard on putting together a Jewish psychedelic bibliography. Um, I'm, I'm still in like the collecting and the organizing phase. And I do know that there's an, art, there's an article that I've added to it and this is the um, art, this is your list I mentioned at the very start of our interview, right? Okay. So there's, there's that this bibliography that I'm putting together in a shared Excel that anyone can have access to, and there is an article there um, I believe written by a, um, a more conservative perspective about LSD, but I haven't read it yet. What I would say is um, probably what we would have to do is look at similar situations. So maybe where I would personally start to explore that question mm. is, you know, the traditions around Purim um, and kind of the, you know, drinking or inebriation to the point that you can't differentiate between good and evil um, being kind of an interesting situation. So I, I think that my answer has kind of two parts. One is process and one is kind of the collecting of information. Yeah. And the other one is looking at existing, um, existing discussions about existing mind altering states um, and, and thinking about it. And it can be anything as related to substances like the Purim reference or just altered states in general. So for example, the custom of fasting of brides and grooms fasting you know, before their weddings. So I would look at in general situations where Jewish practice looks at altering states, not just with substances, but altering states sure. through nature or their own bodies. Yeah, well, it's it's like um, Muslim Sufi mystics will will do that whirling dervish thing that that we see. That is a form of meditation aimed at altering their consciousness to give them a greater connection to Allah. Um, it's not drug assisted, it's physically assisted, but again, you're right, same concept. It's, it's a, 
uh, embracing of an alteration of consciousness to enhance a spiritual experience. Um, yeah, which makes yeah. me wonder, doubling back to that, that reference we had earlier in the conversation to the cannabis residue on that temple altar, I am dying to know what that must have been like for those folks. You know, were they, were they sitting in, in, in rows of seats, uh, somebody at the front, a rabbi or a cantor leading this and administering stuff to people? And if so, did they hang out and talk? Did they, I mean, you know, what happened? I am dying to know what that was like. And what I'm dying to know, I think this is maybe a good way to, to end today's chat, is what I'm dying to know is what the psychedelic Jewish elders who felt they had to leave the tradition behind, what they could share with those of us who are building a Jewish psychedelic future. So the, you know, Alex Grays of the world, the, you know, the, the Ram Dasses of the world um, and so on and so forth. Okay, you went elsewhere for a while. Um, a, you can never really fully run away, but B, yeah. what can we learn from you? Yeah. What can we, you know, what can we keep by, in by mind? By the way, also true, you can never fully come back either. What do you mean? Well, you said they ran away and you want to know what they experienced. But what I'm saying is when they come back, they're not really fully coming back. They're different. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. And yeah. that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was I was saying the running away in the Hitler sense. But oh, like, oh, sorry. You brought Hitler into the conversation? Good. Well, like, it was supposed <laughs> to talk about Jews. It was destined to happen some point. Thank, thank you. You got the Hitler in. You got the Hitler in. Thank you. We the synagogue building, but you don't really believe. Um, that's, why that's why when you said, like, you don't really come back, I'm like, ah. Oh, no, no. I didn't mean it at the extreme. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. You were, like, thinking, like, Spinoza's. <laughs> you know, style, like excommunication, which we don't really do that much these days. No, so, no. But, um, but, no. but so Spinoza is the right reference at that point. So thank you for making that. <laughs> there you go. So I just, you know, that's, that's my, my, uh, personal interest is, you know, how can we make it better so that Jews that have the same spiritual and intellectual needs that these individuals have and had can feel like they can, they can, um, explore within uh within the backyard i like that i like that should we end there that's like a great point to end it sure okay so that <laughs> I, I gave you final word i love it um listen this is a fantastic interview and i'm sorry i've got to run and go do my day job because uh, i would yes, happily please. do this all afternoon with you so will you please come back and continue this conversation oh, with me I'd be happy to i i this is a great place to kind of you know, experiment with ideas. So I would thank you so much for having me today and absolutely count me on, you know, coming back and then also introducing you to other fabulous individuals that I've, that I've been meeting in uh, asking similar yet different questions. Excellent. And, and I understand uh, FDA did approve the Pfizer vaccine today. So hopefully in another eh, six months, we can actually do this in person. Wouldn't that be that nice? So fun. That long, would be amazing. Long overdue. I've been wandering my living room for a year now. I'd like to get out of it. <laughs> so, Inshallah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. I will be in touch. So. Take care. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. 
please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalux.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank mm-hmm. you.